0: Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Today we are so happy to welcome Kate Boyce on the show. She is the co founder of the Instagram page and website Endogirls Blog, which provides accurate information to people with endometriosis. Kate is a board certified patient advocate and an endometriosis patient herself. If you are not yet following Kate as a source of credible information, then you definitely, definitely want to start. I talked with Kate previously in episode 95 when we explained what endometriosis guidelines are. And today we're going to focus on how to find an excision surgeon. If you are new to endometriosis, please know that there's actually two types of surgery for endometriosis. There is excision and there is ablation. Excision is the gold standard treatment for endometriosis. And I've gone ahead and I've linked the treatment page of my website in the show notes today. If you want to read more, and learn about the very important differences between these two types of surgery so that you can make a more informed decision in your care. Today, Kate and I are going to discuss how to find an excision surgeon. And much of what we speak about today is actually written up on my website as well, along with links to resources that Kate provides that other credible sources of information also provide. So definitely check out the show notes today because it is full of Helpful resources for you. All right. Please join me in welcoming Kate to the show. Hi, Kate. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today.
1: Hi, Amy. Thank you for having me.
0: So, we'll just go ahead and introduce ourselves. So, I'm Amy, and my pronouns are she, her, and I am the co host of this podcast.
1: I'm Kate. My pronouns are she, her, and I am co founder of
0: Endo Girls Blog and board certified patient advocate let's jump right in. Cause we are here today to talk about how to find an endometriosis excision surgeon, which honestly can be more difficult I feel like than finding a needle in the haystack. So I guess I want to ask you the first question, Kate, which is can my regular gynecologist treat endometriosis? So the short easy answer to this is no.
1: However, it is incredibly nuanced, right? So there's not just a, a distinct line between your OBGYN and an endometriosis surgeon. So it takes a lot of work on our end as a patient to really dig into whether or not that OBGYN could be qualified to do it. But as a general rule, OBGYNs do not have the proper training to sufficiently excise endometriosis or even know how to look for endometriosis.
0: Yeah, this is one of those huge problems with endometriosis is that, as we know, the disease is just mired with misinformation. And what happens is it leads to gynecologists who are uninformed and misinformed about the illness. And so many gynecologists who think that they know how to treat endometriosis because they follow the endometriosis guidelines in whatever you know country or region that they're in, or they like think that they have the knowledge through their medical textbooks or their medical training. But in reality they don't know how to treat endometriosis. And that's why this is really hard because that burden falls on us as the patient because it's not like we can ask the doctor, hey, do you know how to treat endometriosis? And they're like, yeah, I do. And then you find out they're just like doing ablation or they're only prescribing hormones. They're not even talking about excision surgery. A lot of them don't even know what excision surgery is or believe in excision surgery. Um, So it's just like really... Difficult because that burden falls on us to ask the questions, to vet our surgeons, to look up all the information on them, and to make that informed choice about whether or not this doctor is qualified to treat our case based on the outcomes that we're looking for. It's really important to know that the term specialist means nothing when it comes to endometriosis. So even there, it's like we cannot even rely on a self proclaimed endometriosis specialist because anyone can use that title. So Kate, I would love if you would talk a little bit about how can we differentiate between like different levels of skill and experience that the doctors that treat us have. I know that on Instagram, you put up a really great post, which had a pyramid, which showed like general OBGYNs at the very bottom, at the base of the pyramid with really just like no knowledge of endometriosis. And then you had all the way at the top of the pyramid, surgeons who are experts in excision. And then you had levels in between. I'm going to go ahead and I'll link that pyramid in the show notes for people to see that. Um, But I'd love if you could go into detail about the different levels of surgeons and doctors that we can encounter for endometriosis care.
1: So because finding the right surgeon for your case is incredibly complicated, I really try to break it down into a few steps whenever I'm assisting somebody in this process. So for somebody who's brand new to all of this and all they have found out so far is that they've seen online that OBGYNs are not necessarily endometriosis surgeons, but they don't really know what that means. So what I try to explain is that OBGYNs, they go through medical school. And then they go through residency. And then during that residency, they aren't taught endometriosis excision surgery, right? They get a very brief introduction to doing a laparoscopic surgery, but that's just so they can go in and do, you know, basic investigations. So say if a patient is experiencing like infertility, they can go in and they can look to see if there's anything structurally wrong with the anatomy. But and they can do, you know, hysterectomies and just other basic procedures but there's no additional training there for more complex surgical cases. So what you will often find is that you can find maybe, you can maybe find an OBGYN who's done something called a minimally invasive gynecological surgery fellowship. So then you get these fellowship trained OBGYNs. And really all this means is that they've done an additional training in surgery. So They're becoming more proficient with their hysterectomies and those routine gynecological surgeries. Right there, I think it's really crucial to understand that because this fellowship exists, that really points out how lacking the surgical training is for regular OBGYNs in residency. So the fact that this fellowship even has to exist, right there, pinpoints one of the first problems that we're facing. However, just because they've done this fellowship, it doesn't mean that that fellowship specialized in endometriosis. What I point out is that at that point, you know, that's just like I said, you know, they're more proficient at hysterectomies, maybe fibroid removals, other various gynecological surgeries. At this point, sometimes this is where these doctors will call themselves endometriosis surgeons because they've had a little bit of an additional surgical training. So they're like, oh, yeah. All right. Well, I'm an endometriosis surgeon. However, there's no such thing as a fellowship that ends up with the doctor being considered an endometriosis excision specialist. That just doesn't exist. We want it to exist, but it doesn't. So then, you know, it's up to that doctor at that point if they want to go on and further their education with endometriosis. So oftentimes that really just looks like a lot of these surgeons talking amongst each other tips and tricks. There's no standardized method for learning how to do this. There are a few fellowship programs out there that do focus on endometriosis excision. One of those is provided by the Center for Endometriosis Care. And quite a few of our specialist surgeons have done that fellowship where it is strictly only focused on excision of endometriosis. It's very rare. And the other problem that we face with that is that you know, doing this additional surgical training is out of pocket for these doctors. So, you know, it's not really their fault if they don't want to continue on to learn how to be an excision surgeon, because they probably they went to school already for so long. If they've already done a fellowship and, you know, gynecological surgery, they just need to get to work and make money. And I don't blame them. Right. So it's not really their fault. You know, it's a very it's a systemic issue from the top. And so, I think this is one of the reasons that we have so few endometriosis surgeons is because it takes so much time to learn. It's complicated to learn. And then it's also expensive. And so if we're fortunate enough, you know, when we're digging through, we're finding doctors, and these are all questions that are appropriate to ask, what kind of additional surgical training do you have? Is any of that, you know, specialized in endometriosis? Mm -hmm. This is when... You know, if you look at my pyramid that I made, I've got, you know, the OBGYNs at the bottom that don't have the additional surgical training. The level above that is those OBGYNs with that fellowship and minimally invasive gynecologic surgery. And then right above that, this is where it's like, you've got those surgeons that have done that fellowship and they've got a lot of years under their belt. So they're not just fresh out of fellowship. They've got, you know, the the practice, and they've come across more complicated cases. And so they've just kind of like learned their groove surgically. However, this still doesn't make them, you know, an endometriosis surgeon, even if they've been operating on a few endometriosis cases. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're super proficient at that. You do get like a level above that where a lot of these surgeons will really truly believe and call themselves endometriosis specialists at this point, because they really, I mean, they truly believe it. And however, there's a lot of hints when you're talking to these doctors that let you know that they're not actually the top tier of an endometriosis excision specialist, because they, they'll they'll use terms or they'll say things like, well, this area is too dangerous to excise And there's not enough evidence to prove that cauterization or more commonly known as ablation can't be utilized, right? So there's a common idea amongst these doctors that if it's superficial endo, you can just burn it off and it's just as effective. Or they'll say things like hormone suppression after surgery is necessary to get rid of maybe microscopic endometriosis. That's an incredibly controversial term a lot of the specialists don't believe microscopic endo actually exists. It's kind of just a cop out.
0: I'll just jump in and say that actually Brittany and I we did an episode on um the appearances of endometriosis and of course why that's so important that the doctor be able to recognize all the endometriosis and its colors and forms and appearances and we did talk about the microscopic debate in that episode if anyone is further interested in that.
1: Yeah, that's super controversial, absolutely. And it's important to note that you know, these surgeons they're they're becoming more familiar with endometriosis at this tier and maybe they're starting to recognize different forms um and different appearances and different colors, but they still just you know, they've only done maybe a couple hundred of these. And I know that might sound like a lot, but when you hear that the top surgeons have done thousands, it really puts that into perspective. So I do like to tell patients because it is really hard to access some of these top tier surgeons. I always make it clear that if the only surgeon you can access is one that's, you know, right below that top tier where maybe they do believe in microscopic endo, maybe they do believe in cauterization or ablation of certain areas, I let them know that it's okay if that is all they can access, right? It's really important that we recognize that not everybody's going to be able to access one of the very best top tier surgeons. And so I always make it a note to these people to say, listen, you can still have a successful surgery, even if you can't access the top. And this is important because I feel like a lot of patients, you know, they will just give up, right? They're like, well, I can't access the best. so I'll just settle for the OBGYN. You can still totally take the time to at least find that surgeon that has more experience, has at least done some endometriosis cases, who at least understands that excision is an important part of removing the disease. And I have met quite a few patients that they recognize they didn't access the best, but they have a significantly improved quality of life. One of the key points to this is making sure that they've got the additional surgical training so that they don't necessarily make your situation worse. That's something that we often need to discuss because we have said in this community for quite some time that no surgery can be better than bad surgery. Sometimes doctors that aren't necessarily fans of us in the advocacy community will say, these patients, all they want to do is push for surgery, surgery, surgery. And that's not necessarily safe. And I agree with that to some extent. We're definitely not promoting just going and having surgery with anybody. We're promoting taking the time and researching your surgeon so you're not having repeated surgeries with someone that's not capable. And more often than not, the unfortunate reality is when we're going to an OBGYN and we're having surgery year after year or even every ever every other year, and they're going in and they're cauterizing or ablating they're generating a lot of scar tissue. You get a lot of scar tissue, you get a lot of adhesions, there's a lot of smoke that's generated during the process, and that really irritates all of the tissue internally that was never meant to be messed with anyway. So it can really just set us up for failure, and that's why unless there is a medical emergency, it can be very beneficial to take the time to research your surgeon. So, So say, you know, you can't access the top, But you can still access a good gynecologic surgeon who at least isn't going to make the situation worse. And ultimately, the goal is, you know, improved quality of life. Another thing that we face in this tier of surgeons is that they'll call themselves an endometriosis excision surgeon. But what I've noticed is patients will get their pathology report back and they're only excising a few bits, but they're calling that excision. So what they're finding is that, okay, maybe they sent like three samples to pathology and then they'll read in their their post-operative report will say other areas were fulgurated, which is another common term utilized for ablation. And that term usually confuses patients. And I say, no, that's that's essentially the same as ablating. And then they'll say, well, it doesn't matter because it was, you know, in a, a difficult area or it was just superficial. So they'll still call themselves an excision surgeon. And that's a reason that it's important for us to ask that question specifically. When you say you're an excision surgeon, are you actually excising all of the endometriosis or does that are you leaving room there for some superficial ablation there?
0: I'm going to go ahead, before you move on to the very top tier of the pyramid, I'm just going to go ahead and kind of summarize what you've talked about so far. So when we look at the pyramid, we have on the bottom that we've talked about the OBGYNs who have no additional surgical training. And then a step up from that are the OBGYNs who have the fellowship in minimally invasive gynecological surgery. Now, a step up from that is the OBGYNs who have the fellowship in the minimally invasive gynecological surgery, plus some years in experience and proficiency in gynecological surgeries. And then the next tier, which you were just talking about, which is right below the top tier, is when they have all of that and now they're, you know, focusing, they've been focusing on endometriosis excision. So as you were saying, like the skills and experience can really be across the board at this level. You can have people who, like, are newer to the endometriosis surgery, people who are, like, more surgeries under their belt, but not, like, at that top, top level yet. Um, some of them may excise endometriosis from most places, but still ablate in other places that they think is like too dangerous to excise or that they think there's no evidence for. They might tell you to use hormonal suppression to dry up microscopic endometriosis, quote unquote, dry up. We know hormonal suppression does not dry up endometriosis, um, but they may be telling you to do that post-surgery, you know, to like as a precaution. So that is all where we're at right now in this discussion. And I also wanted to add that my surgeon was actually in this tier that we're talking about right now. So, you know, he had the mixed fellowship, very proficient in all these gynecological surgeries. And I believe he'd been operating in endometriosis for a couple of years. He did believe in complete excision, but he also still had some outdated information. Like he believed in retrograde menstruation which could be fine if he excised all the endometriosis but he was like oh you're an endo factory and like i'll see you in 3 years when your endo comes back and i was like uh the recurrence rate should be really low if you excise it all man so you know he also believed in lupron post surgery and like was pressuring me to go on lupron you know he was not at that top tier but he was able to excise my endometriosis and you know 5 years later i am Still endometriosis, pain and symptom-free. So I think that is a good point to what you're saying that, like, of course, we want to go with the best surgeons out there, but we may not be able to access the best. And so having all this information and background knowledge can help us to really ask our surgeon questions and judge if we think that they're going to be able to operate on our case and ask them, what are your complications, what are your outcomes?" And we'll get to that further on in this episode.
1: I love the top tier that I'm going to talk about. This is what I feel like I've dedicated so much of my work to finding, um, and breaking down for patients because this is such a unique group of surgeons. Um, unfortunately there are so few of them. And what I've noticed is that as they do more and more and more of these surgeries, when I ask, talk to these surgeons that are, you know, supposed to be in the top, I noticed that the ones that have done 1,500 to 2,000 of these surgeries do differ in some of their ideas than the ones that have done, you know, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10,000 surgeries. Those surgeons do exist. And with that amount of experience and that many patients, they can gather an enormous amount of data. And with that much data and that much experience, they can get a much better, well-rounded idea of what is going on with endometriosis. So when I'm talking about these surgeons, a lot of them, they've done some form of additional fellowship training in just endometriosis. So like the one for the Center for Endometriosis Care, from their website, they state, that they are committed to creating an enduring legacy of education and training in minimally invasive gynecologic surgery specific to the advanced excision of endometriosis and complex surgical competencies for the next generation of providers. This is all they do. These are surgeons that have just dedicated time to learning how to surgically treat endometriosis. There are no specific requirements, of course, but we really want to focus on seeing if they've Done a fellowship in endometriosis surgery. If they haven't, that's okay. You know, look at who their colleagues are, who they're talking with, who they're working with, and how many surgeries they've done. Another important aspect to these surgeons is that, so oftentimes these are also surgeons who are teaching other surgeons. So they're the ones that, you know, they're doing the, sometimes they're the ones teaching the fellowship. They do not see patients for routine gynecologic care. They are able to find and remove all endometriosis with a multidisciplinary team. So this can get controversial because people will say, well, no, my surgeon is an expert. And he said the endometriosis in this location is just too dangerous to remove. When I've spoken to the actual top surgeons, I've only heard of one case where they couldn't remove the endometriosis because it was detrimental to the integrity of the actual heart. That is the only time that I'm aware of speaking with these surgeons. Ones that aren't at that level, of course, they'll say, oh no, there are other areas that are too dangerous. Something that I really respect is that these surgeons that are in that top tier, but maybe they're just not quite at that like multiple thousand point, or they don't have that multidisciplinary care available is what I love when, you know, a patient tells me, hey, they ended up not removing an an endometriosis in this one spot. And they admitted not because it can't be, but because they don't necessarily think that they can do it safely. But hey, my colleague here definitely can. So let's follow up with them to see what they think. And that, that really just shows that higher level of surgical knowledge and understanding their limitations and but saying hey you know not being arrogant and saying oh it can't be done just because I can't do it they recognize okay I do have a colleague here that does specialize that typically happens with thoracic endometriosis so and when we say a multidisciplinary team what what matters here is that so so if a patient thinks they have thoracic endometriosis yes our top surgeons could probably do it however the hospitals and the Surgical centers will have regu- like rules and regulations on who can operate on what parts of the body. So what will happen is they'll need a cardiothoracic surgeon to come in to do the surgery, but you want to, your endometriosis surgeon to be there with them in order to point out tissue they may be missing. So sometimes in this more subpar care that I've heard of, they'll say, my surgeon does multidisciplinary care. But then they later find out that their endometriosis surgeon wasn't even assisting, say, the cardiothoracic surgeon. So then they're like, well, how do you know they actually got all the endometriosis? You don't, right? Because the cardiothoracic surgeon isn't going to be proficient in endometriosis. So it's really important to make sure that they're working together. And that is another indicator of that really top tier surgeon is that they're collaborating. Anyone can say they do multidisciplinary care. But are they actually collaborating with that other surgeon? So, and these are, soup. when I say like they've done thousands of surgeries, it's not just like in the past. I mean, they're consistently high volume. Um, the high volume ones that I've spoken to, they're doing six to 10 complex surgeries per week. That's not just, oh, they're doing six to 10 endometriosis cases that take an hour. These are complex surgeries that take hours upon hours. They often will need bowel resections. These are not just simple endometriosis surgeries. Another thing I've noticed is that these really top surgeons, they're not the ones pushing out academic papers. So they'll have, you'll see that there's some surgeons out there that say they're the top, but they're always pushing out these academic papers. The top surgeons I've spoken to, they're too busy. They are in the operating room. They don't have time to be doing this other academic stuff. I absolutely have a lot of respect for the individuals that are doing the academic work, but it's just not the same as being a excision specialist.
0: You know, I think we've really outlined like the different levels of the pyramid and all these different aspects when it comes to like experience and skill level and volume of the top surgeons, but I'd love to ask you like very specific pointed questions about who makes a good endometriosis surgeon. So, the first thing I want to ask you is we know that a good endometriosis surgeon is a highly skilled, high volume excision surgeon, right? Who understands endometriosis, how to properly diagnose and treat it with good surgical outcomes and low complication rates. What do you think is high volume for an excision surgeon?
1: High volume usually means six to 10 excision surgeries per week. And again, complex surgeries, not just, okay, going in, completing within 45 minutes to an hour. These are usually surgeries that are super complex that require a multidisciplinary team. So they are six to 10 surgeries per week, you know, not every single week, but averaging that.
0: So this high volume that you're talking about would really be like with those top surgeons in the top level of the pyramid. Um, and I think another good metric that we can go off of is a hundred excision surgeries per year with at least five years experience and this wouldn't be for those like top surgeons in the top of the pyramid, but this could be for those like surgeons who are underneath that top level of the pyramid that we are talking about, who have the MIG, who you know are doing endometriosis but just have not yet reached that highest level of skill and experience. Does a good excision surgeon treat obstetrics, general gynecology, or cancer?
1: No, these surgeons are not doing routine care or anything outside of the scope of endometriosis, such as oncology. They, at that point, if they believe that there is a the potential for cancer, they do refer out to a gyne-oncologist for that. So they are strictly focusing on just surgical excision of endometriosis. They will actually sometimes even have you, you know, follow up later for your routine care with your regular doctor, whether that be your primary or maybe you have an OBGYN that you do like. As long as that OBGYN is open and understanding of you going to an excision specialist, they can be great for follow-up care. These surgeons are 100% just dedicated to surgery. That is all they do. Sometimes they will hire on, you know, a physician assistant or nurse practitioner to do some of the more routine care. But for the most part, these top excision surgeons are only doing surgery.
0: My own excision surgeon. So this was back in 2018. And like I said, he was not at the top level of the pyramid. He was at the second to the top. Um, But I learned afterwards, because unfortunately, when I first did my excision surgery, I still was not the advocate that I am now. So I didn't have all of this knowledge and I didn't know to ask all of these questions. Um, So I found out afterwards that my surgeon actually still was doing routine gynecological care at that time. He was still doing pap smears. He was still delivering babies, but he was shifting his practice more and more towards excision surgery. And I know that like a couple of years ago, he actually did move Specifically, to a practice where he would not be doing that gynecological care and he would only be doing surgeries, the majority of which are endometriosis. But I was like, oh my gosh, he's still delivering babies. So it's so important to find the doctor that is doing the high volume care. And they really just cannot be getting the high volume care if their time is split between OB and surgery. So We've established that it's not enough that the surgeon does surgery in gynecology. It's not enough that they have that mixed fellowship. They really need to understand how to recognize endometriosis and all of its colors and appearances and locations. So can you tell us why this is so important?
1: This is important because sometimes endometriosis does not appear in the way that is traditionally taught in medical school or even OBGYN residency. So they're typically just taught to look for what's called, you know, those black powder burns. The unfortunate reality is that endometriosis can appear in a variety of ways. And also there are sometimes, even if they do know how to recognize various forms of endometriosis, they even more so need to know like what signs to look for in the body For them to further investigate an area for endometriosis. So sometimes endometriosis will be hidden pretty well, and the surgeon has to kind of go digging for it. But what can be helpful is if that surgeon has done enough of these cases where they know like, hey, this tissue looks a little bit shinier than it should, or this tissue looks a little bit taut, let's investigate that spot further. And so then they start to dig basically, and then they'll find, you know, a whole pocket of endometriosis. That is why it's so critical to have that experience and knowing all forms. We're not talking just how the endometriosis looks, but also looking for the hints in the body for what could indicate that there's endometriosis further in that area. That's why it's so critically important. So the ones with less experience, you know they may not know what those signs are, and so endometriosis can be very easily left behind when we get into a really messy spot here because you'll have surgeons that are like, "No, I'm an excision surgeon, I got it all. I don't know why you're still in pain," and then they'll go to somebody that has you know more experience, and it was simply because they just missed some little signs and hints of where to dig deeper to find the endometriosis when that endometriosis gets left behind, it's really complicated, right so that surgeon may genuinely believe that they got it all, but it really could be hidden. Sometimes, even the best, you know, they're still humans. Sometimes it can go missed because endometriosis is incredibly complex, and it typically results in persistent pain that is very specific. It's very different than when a patient has pain after surgery that's not related to endometriosis, which can happen just because of the nature of this disease. But when the disease is left behind, you know, because it was missed, we don't get proper resolution of those specific symptoms.
0: This really highlights why it's so important to get all of our records to get our post-op report and also to have the surgeon take pictures in there. And I mean, if they can to take video, because then you can go and take your records to another surgeon if you're still having pain and you can get a second opinion. Right. And so you can have them look. I've seen before on social media some of the excision surgeons that talk about their cases and they show, like, oh, this patient came to me and their previous surgeon said that they got all the endometriosis, but circled here, 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 and here, you can see shiny bumps, you can see reflection, you can see a peritoneal pocket, you can see discoloration of blood vessels, or like that it looks like the blood vessels are hidden, et cetera, et cetera. So there's all kinds of ways that atypical looking tissue can actually be harboring endometriosis. And some of these less skilled, less experienced, not top tier surgeons are not aware of that. And then unfortunately, the patient gets gaslit, right? I got all your endo. It must be in your head. I got all your endo. It must be central sensitization. I got all your endo XYZ. And it's like, actually, you didn't get all my endo. So one of the next qualities of a good excision surgeon is that they need to be able to safely excise endometriosis from all locations. Kate, can you talk a little bit about complications with excision surgery?
1: Absolutely. This is incredibly important. As we continue to get more surgeons trained with endometriosis excision, I've noticed that some of them can almost be a little bit overzealous. And I've what I've noticed is that Pelvic nerve injury is a significant issue that we face there. So we'll get surgeons that are almost a little bit too confident and they'll go in and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can excise this. I got this. And we get long-term complications associated with that. Maybe don't recognize it right away, but we're learning that it is incredibly easy to essentially mess with the nerves in our pelvic cavity that have great implications. So one of those that we tend to see is that patients will end up with gastroparesis. We're starting to understand now that that can be a result of messing with those pelvic nerves. So you've got these nerve plexus down there. You've got an inferior hypogastric nerve plexus. You've got a superior hypogastric nerve plexus. But what happens is that they're so intricate and if they're just slightly messed with the wrong way then you can have serious issues later on. And a lot of the times that is, that is like that gastroparesis where there's a miscommunication or non-communication between those nerves and the brain. So it's incredibly important when you're looking for these surgeons to say, hey, what kind of training or what kind of experience do you have with nerve sparing surgery? That's what you wanna look for. They're really aware of the pelvic nerve structures and they're really aware of how to safely Navigate around the nerves and how to safely, sometimes it's not as common, excise from those nerves. Another issue that we face with excision of endometriosis is a lot of ureter complications. So, endometriosis has a propensity to cause scar tissue and adhesions around the ureters, and those ureters will become, you know, stuck to the abdominal wall. And in order to properly free those ureters, you know, they're going in there in a very delicate space and they're doing a lot of cutting. And so unfortunately, if they just don't have that really precise or higher level of skill, the ureters can become damaged. And typically they'll just be like, oh, it's fine. We'll put a stit in there. And then you got to go back under later to remove the stent. That's kind of one of those. That is a question that you can ask, you know, your surgeon, is this something that you have to do often? They should say No. Um, Some of them are just kind of like flip it about it, like oh yeah, but it's no big deal. We just put a stent in there, you know. The no, you can go to a surgeon that can tell you otherwise. Of course, there could be extreme cases where it is necessary. Surgery does always have complication risks. That could be one of them. And another one that we we see a lot of is when it comes to bowel endometriosis. um, Maybe those lesser skilled ones will be like, okay, well we got to do, you know, we have to operate on your bowels. Maybe you're going to need a bowel resection and you're going to need a long-term colostomy bag. That is a great fear to a lot of patients, especially because bowel endometriosis is pretty common. And those top-tier surgeons very rarely ever even need a colostomy bag, maybe very temporarily. Um, So that is a really good indicator for you to know that level of skill if they're just kind of flippantly saying, oh, no, this is what we do, these colostomy bags. That is a serious red flag. Get another opinion reach out to other surgeons at that point, because that is definitely a type of surgery where you do want to try to get the best.
0: Yeah, I think that's so important. And I know for me, like a really big fear having bowel endometriosis was that I could have a colostomy bag as a outcome of the surgery. I've seen multiple top experts in the top tier of the pyramid who do talk about what you said about how it's almost never do you need a colostomy bag. And if you do, it's only temporary. So it should not be something that is expected going into the surgery. And those rates, like you can ask your doctor, how often do you do a colostomy or like, what are your rates of colostomy? Those rates should be very low. The top surgeons have rates that are like under 4%, like, you know, one, two, 4%, but these should be like very, very low rates of colostomy. I think it's so important that the doctor know the limitations of what they can do and what they can't do, right? So as we said, we don't want this doctor going in and being like, okay, well, like, I think I know, so I'm just going to go for it. And then later, they do more harm than good, and they can cause you long-term complications. Unfortunately, my own doctor, my own excision surgeon, he left behind a little bit of endometriosis on my rectum. Like They actually got the bulk of my bowel endometriosis, and then they told me they left behind endometriosis on my rectum because, in their opinion, they felt that the benefits did not outweigh the risks. Um, Now, as we were talking here, probably it is that they just lack those skills and that another surgeon with more skill could have removed that endometriosis. But it made me really happy to know, even though I wasn't happy that endometriosis was left behind, I was happy to know that they did not go after endometriosis that they did not feel comfortable getting. Like, if they thought that the risks did not outweigh the benefits, then I don't want them going after that endometriosis, right? Because they could do more harm and more complications to me in the long run, and I could have a worse outcome. Let me ask you, Kate. You mentioned a little bit earlier on about how no surgery can be better than bad surgery. So could you talk a little bit about this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Kind of like what you just pointed to here is that if they don't feel that it's safe to do it, I'd rather them not do it, right? Because they can cause more damage like we were just talking about with those complications by going in there and attempting to do something that's just honestly above their skill level. Um, So that's definitely a point where it's just like, we don't want to just rush into a surgery with somebody that doesn't have the skill and we don't want someone that's going to get in over their head and try to do something they really shouldn't. This is something that you mostly see with regular OBGYNs. Well, they'll open up a patient and they'll be like, oh my God, this is wild. You know, they'll have a frozen pelvis and they'll go in and they'll just start cutting away or burning away to dig through what they can find. Um, I've seen that before. Um, It's pretty horrific where they should just stop the surgery and tell the patient, listen, I'm sorry. You're just too complex for my case or for my skill level. Um, And I, in a perfect world, they'll refer out. However, the unfortunate reality is that some get in there and they're just determined to do something um, and they can cause significant damage I don't know of any other surgical specialty where that would ever be considered okay. But for some reason in the OBGYN community, they just they just do it.
0: Yeah, something else I want to point out when it comes to how no surgery can be better than bad surgery is that until now we've been specifically talking about excision surgery. But something that you mentioned earlier that I think is really important to point out is that ablation surgery, which is the superficial burning of the endometriosis tissue. That can cause more damage inside of a person. It can cause scar tissue. It can bury endometriosis under scar tissue, which can make future excision surgeries more complex. It can leave behind carbon damage, thermal damage, and that can stimulate a foreign body giant cell reaction, which can become its own cause of pain. So, there are surgeons who do believe that for this reason and the fact that ablation does not actually remove the endometriosis, that ablation should be banned, right? That gynecologists should not be performing ablation surgery on patients. So I think this is also really important to point out is that although today we are talking specifically about excision surgery, this can be another really important case where if you're thinking about doing an ablation, in many cases, barring an emergency, as you were saying earlier, then it can be better to wait and save up and get the proper care that you need the first time around rather than having a poorly done ablation surgery that leaves you worse off and makes future surgeries even more complex due to scar tissue and damage.
1: So this is a really important point that you've made here. So for myself, I was diagnosed by my OBGYN. I am fortunate that she did not go in And just start, you know, tearing stuff and cutting stuff and burning stuff. She only identified a few pieces of endometriosis and she fulgurated those. So she superficially removed them and then closed me back up. At that point, all I knew was that I had to find somebody that could really take care of this disease. My sister was also diagnosed the same time as I was. I then waited four years, almost four years. Until my actual excision of endometriosis. Yes, I was in pain. Yes, it was awful. But I knew, I just had a gut feeling that it was better to not have an inexperienced surgeon go in and continue to try to do something that they just really didn't understand. And I knew this because, you know, I'd asked them questions about endometriosis and they were just like, really, they didn't seem to have many answers. And I was like, oh, this isn't good enough. So I get it. I waited. And when I finally got to my surgeon, he told me, you're going to have a lot more success with this excision because you haven't been botched by other doctors. He's like, there's only so much we can do as the top surgeons to help you when you've had repeated botched surgeries that have just created an incredible hostile environment that just becomes hard to
0: treat. So another really important quality of a good excision surgeon is that they believe in complete excision. And I know, Kate, that you touched on this earlier, but I just really want to hammer home this point is that they plan to do excision of endometriosis from all the locations with no ablation. So that is a really important question that you can ask them is, you know, do you do excision? They say yes. And you can say, will you be doing any ablation alongside that excision? right? And if they say, oh, yes, like, I also do ablation on superficial, or I do ablation when it's on this spot, that's a red flag to you to know that, okay, they do, they say they do excision, they may be doing excision in some parts, but they're also doing ablation. Do I want an ablation? Likely not. That's a really important question to ask them. I think another really important thing to point out is that they're not going to leave endometriosis behind because of poor surgical planning. So, they're not going to get in there and then be like, oh my gosh, this patient has bowel endometriosis. And, you know, we had no idea. We didn't even have a GI surgeon on hand. I mean, they should be looking at your case, looking at your symptom profile, doing ultrasound or MRI or preoperative scans, trying to get knowledge in conjunction with your patient history to have the multidisciplinary team that they potentially need on hand at the time of your surgery so that you don't have to go do a second surgery with them. Will you tell us for a minute, Kate, about so we know that there are surgeons who say, oh, we couldn't get your endo because it was too risky in this spot. What do you think of this?
1: For the most part, that just leads me to believe that the surgeon just simply does not have the skill. And that's not always a bad thing, right? You know, I've heard of multiple situations where somebody ended up having endometriosis that, you know, was the full thickness of the diaphragm. And even though they're a great excision surgeon, they don't have a cardiothoracic surgeon they work with, so they weren't able to do it. But instead of just the point here is that very rarely is there actually endometriosis that's too dangerous to remove. Almost always it just is they don't have the skill to remove it. And the key is after surgery, the surgeon telling the patient, listen, I wasn't able to do it, but I know a surgeon who I think can. That's the important part. And so just because maybe they can't do it doesn't make them a poor endometriosis surgeon. It actually, I have a lot of respect for those surgeons because they're admitting their limitations, but they're also helping that patient find a surgeon that might be able to do it for them. So to put it clearly, you know, are there locations where endometriosis is too dangerous to excise from? Not really. No, (laughs) the best endometriosis surgeons, they're going to be able to do it for you.
0: Yeah. And I think sometimes that can feel confusing because when you're with your doctor and they're like, well, yours was just too risky. And it's like, oh, do I have some special, super dangerous, complex case of endometriosis? And the answer is no. (laughs) It's just that the surgeon most likely does not have the skills. And a good surgeon should be able, like you said, to recognize that and refer you onward, not just like paint your endo as too risky and then be like, okay, well, you're a lost cause because it's just too risky. I want to talk for a minute about these surgeons who want you to jump through certain hoops in order to get your surgery. So there are surgeons out there who say things like, okay, well, I'll only operate on you if you do Lupron first or Zoladex first or some other hormone first for X number of months. And then if that doesn't work, we'll do the surgery. Or there are surgeons who are like, well, I'll operate on you if you try all the other options available and they don't work. So what do you think of this gatekeeping of excision surgery? Or there are surgeons who say, well, I only operate on cases that are stage four or, well, we don't typically operate on superficial endometriosis because that doesn't cause pain. Or, hey, your scans were negative, so you likely don't have stage four, so we won't operate on you. What do you think about this gatekeeping to you need to to have or do something specific to access an excision surgery?
1: This topic is interesting because it's definitely evolved over the years. So just even five years ago, this wasn't even necessarily... A known thing as, you know, gatekeeping of excision, primarily because excision surgery was hardly even discussed, even just five years ago. And imaging wasn't as good as it is now. So now you've got surgeons that will say, you know, your imaging shows non-advanced, so we don't need to operate, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas before it would just be like, oh, your ultrasound is clear. There's nothing we can do. This primarily is occurring in places outside of the United States. That is just abundantly clear. What happens in the the United States is typically, you know, they'll just do some maybe birth control to see if it helps with your symptoms and then further investigate endometriosis if you are still having pain. We don't have as much gatekeeping here with like Lupron or Oralisa, primarily because patients here can just leave their OBGYN, right? We can just go find a different doctor. However, there are countries... And individuals I've spoken to in countries where their doctors will just outright refuse surgery and they cannot find, they can't just go find another doctor. They're at the mercy of the system. And so they have these doctors that are saying, okay, birth control didn't work. Now we're going to try another form of suppression. We're going to try another. And then they make their way up to Lupron or Lyssa or, or if, you know, Lupron's not what's available in your country. They use something like Zolodex or Prostat. And then they'll say, well, if it works, then we're not going to do surgery, right? Or they'll say, only if that fails, then I'll go in and do surgery. So this whole thing is just incredibly, it's not only just, it's a total disaster. What should be happening is I completely understand the idea that, no, we shouldn't just immediately jump into surgery. I understand that. I understand that the first line of treatment For many of the symptoms that go along with endometriosis, such as primary dysmenorrhea, painful periods, first line of treatment there is going to be, you know, like your NSAIDs, like naproxen or Motrin, whatever, and birth control. And I get that. Those are non-invasive. They just make sense. And they can be helpful for some people. The issue is that if that pain is persisting, or you're having those non-specific symptoms that we sometimes don't pay attention to as being associated with endometriosis, like painful bowel movements, painful urination, those type of symptoms are still persisting. Surgery should not be denied. Surgery, and it also shouldn't just be done by an OBGYN. In a perfect world, your OBGYN is going to say, since they're usually ones to catch endometriosis first, hey, you know what? I think you have endometriosis based on your symptoms. If you want to try birth control, because that is the first line of treatment, typically that's an option, or we can go ahead and refer you to maybe an endometriosis surgeon or somebody who focuses on this to do a more thorough investigation and in a surgery. So it's really complicated. No, they should not be gatekeeping surgery, but we also don't want inappropriate providers conducting the surgery. So it's just It's so nuanced, you know, it's like there absolutely should not be gatekeeping with the more severe drugs like Oralissa or Lupron. That's completely inappropriate. What should be happening is a referral to a surgeon who can further investigate. You know, there's this push away from a diagnostic laparoscopy, which I'm torn on because no, we don't want OBGYNs just opening up to do diagnostic surgery. What should be happening is the referral to a legitimate surgeon and we should not be utilizing these drugs as a way to gatekeep surgery but i understand that to have full informed consent for the patient they should be offered a variety you know of options you know so i can if you want to we can go ahead and get you to a surgeon or if you want to try birth control first whatever i don't know of a single top surgeon by the way that ever uses Lupron or Oraliza. There are some that are pretty good that'll say, oh, it has a place and a time. They still don't force it. But when I've spoken to the top, 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 they say, no, there's no reason to use it ever.
0: It's so frustrating. I Multiple people who have told me about the gatekeeping with their surgery have, as you said, been in countries that are not US countries with surgeons who are saying that they're endometriosis specialists, endometriosis quote unquote experts. By the time the patients have got to these quote unquote experts and specialists, which um, typically they're not, they have gone through that whole gauntlet of over-the-counter medication, hormonal medication, trying the diet change. Like Typically they're at a point where they're looking to have surgery because nothing else has worked for them. And it's just so frustrating and disheartening to then find themselves in a situation where the supposed only or one of the only endometriosis specialists in their country is then asking them to go through the same hoops that they've already gone to or denying their surgery just because of the results of their ultrasound. All right, so we're nearing the end of our Episode. And I think we've had a great discussion about the different skill levels and experience that the surgeons treating us can have. And I think we've also distinguished between, because of those different skill levels and experiences that our surgeons have, there are varying levels of excision surgery, right? So we can have the, you know, excision surgery where the surgeon does full excision of all locations of our endometriosis where the surgeon knows how to recognize and safely excise all our endometriosis or we could have had excision surgery with a surgeon who is not one of the top surgeons you know who is still has skills in endometriosis surgery but is still learning learning how to do excision maybe some of these surgeons are doing excision and ablation of our endometriosis so really we know and we've established that excision surgery is not equal among all of us. And the excision surgery that we could be getting is different from the excision surgery that our neighbor got, excision surgery different from someone that someone else in a different country got. So let me ask you, Kate, how can we find an excision surgeon? If you've been in the endometriosis
1: community for even a week, (laughs) you've probably heard of A Facebook group called Nancy's Nook. One of the benefits of this Facebook group is that there is a list in there of surgeons that can be a great starting point for finding an endometriosis surgeon near you. The issue that we face is that people, for some reason, think that this is like an all-inclusive list of only top-tier surgeons. However, that's not the case. Because it is so hard to find a surgeon and even harder to find one within a reasonable distance, the list is kind of opened up to almost anybody that at least has an interest in endometriosis excision surgery. They at least recognize that excision plays a role. That doesn't mean that they're going to fit in that top tier level. A lot of them still think that superficial endo can be cauterized. A lot of them still use hormone suppression. So it's just a basic starting point. And from there, you can maybe pick a few, find who's closest, and then utilize the tools that you learn from, you know, advocates or podcasts like this one on the on websites that have like, you know, this formally listed out list of questions to ask. So you can use that list to narrow down, find someone you want to interview. Because that's basically what we're doing here is we're interviewing our doctors and we're going to take these questions with us and we're going to see how they answer these questions and see if they're a good fit for our case. So we've pretty much provided you with the tools here to know what the answers should be. And then from there, it really is up to you and whether or not you feel comfortable with that surgeon. It is just so incredibly important to recognize that they're not all on the same level playing field. It really is up to us to further investigate. So, that is just one resource. I tell people all the time that just because they're not on that list doesn't mean they're not an expert surgeon. There are plenty of surgeons that I've even encountered that are exceptional surgeons that have actually done endometriosis fellowships, and they're not on that list for a variety of reasons. Sometimes they just like to keep their head down and operate. You know, they're not celebrity doctors, and that's absolutely okay. So I tell people, you know, feel free to look around what's local to you as well and see maybe this doctor that you're reading on their website, you're looking up their qualifications and you're like, oh, they've done additional training. Oh, it says here that, you know, maybe they went to a place that's known for having additional surgical training in endometriosis and say, listen, I think I'm going to make an appointment with them. And then you might find that diamond in the rough near you. And I think it's important for people to understand that. You're not just completely out of luck because there's not somebody near you. You could find somebody that works really well for you, you know? Another thing I like to point out is that if somebody is considered a top-tier surgeon, but they're wanting five, six, seven, eight, nine, a thousand, fifteen hundred dollars for a consult, there is absolutely nothing wrong with crossing them off your list. There are plenty of exceptional surgeons out there who are not going to charge you an exorbitant amount of money. For a consult. If you want an actual telehealth appointment, then yes, sometimes that's going to cost some money, maybe a couple hundred bucks tops. A lot of our good surgeons will just do a free case evaluation, you know, just reach out to them in some way. They're usually open to chit chatting with you. The really great ones don't seem to have an ego, they really do want to help. Um, The ones in a more traditional setting, you know you might have to make an appointment but they should you know if you have a if you have good insurance it shouldn't be it shouldn't cost you a lot of money so there are a few ways you know you can you can go about finding the right surgeon for you honestly it really just boils down to asking them the right questions and making sure you like their answers and going with your gut on it as well when i finally got to my excision surgeon he told me he said listen I want to make sure that you're comfortable with me and you're happy with me because I don't want you going under anesthesia with any doubts or even being a little bit afraid. And I really appreciated that insight from him. And so that's something I've carried on to suggesting to patients as well. You want to feel really comfortable with that doctor.
0: So I know that you actually have a list of questions on your website to ask a potential excision surgeon. So that, as long as two other sets of questions, I have on my website. So I'm going to go ahead and link in the show notes today. I have a page on my website called How to Find a Specialist. And it really outlines everything that Kate and I talked about today. So you can have it right, very clear, right before you. And it has different links, different links to question lists, one of those provided by Kate. Thank you, Kate. It has links to Nancy's Nook, it has links to open payments. You can take a look at your surgeon, you can see are they receiving money from big pharma? So definitely want to recommend that, you know, if you are looking for an excision surgeon, take a look at this page I've made on my website, because not only does it have what we talked about today, but it has a bunch of links. Um, It also has the link to Kate's surgical pyramid, although I am going to put that separately in the show notes today. And then Kate, I love what you said. It's just that that's something that I always let people know as well is just because you have a surgery with one of the doctors from Nancy's Nook that does not guarantee that you're going to be pain-free afterwards. It doesn't guarantee that you won't have complications. It doesn't guarantee their endo won't persist or recur. Not all of the excision surgeons on that list have the same skill level or experience. So this isn't something that we should just take for granted and I know that I did when I was looking for a surgeon back in 2018, I just thought if they were on Nancy's nook that they were a good surgeon. So I didn't ask the surgeon any of these questions. I literally just, I showed up and I was like, I think I have endo. And he was like, I think you do too. And we just booked a surgery with like no questions. And it was actually only later in the post-op when he started talking to me about Lupron and how endos from retrograde menstruation and he left some endo behind. And I was like, ah. And it would have been really nice going in to have asked all of the questions so that I could have judged, is this a surgeon that I want to operate with? And then as you said, if they're not on Nancy's nook list, that doesn't mean that they're a bad surgeon. Not every excision surgeon is on that list. So that list is not the end all be all, but it is, it can be a really great potential starting place for a lot of people. One more thing I want to talk about is If the surgeon is a robotic surgeon versus a standard laparoscopic surgeon. And I just want to say that we actually did an entire episode that just aired with Dr. DeLumba talking about robotic surgery. So we really recommend you go back and listen to that. Um, Dr. DeLumba is an expert excision surgeon and he has done over 8,000 excision surgeries. So he is one of those like top volume surgeons that we're talking about in the pyramid. But basically what we talked about in that episode is that the robot is just a tool. The robot does not make or break your surgery. The robot does not mean you'll have better or worse surgery. It comes down to the surgeon's ability to recognize endometriosis and then safely excise endometriosis. There are excellent excision surgeons with great patient outcomes and low complication rates who use the robot. And there's also excellent excision surgeons with great patient outcomes and low complication rates who don't use the robot. So the robot is just a tool and it's not a make or break for your surgery. Last question, Kate. Does it matter, at least here in the United States, because in different countries it's different, but do you think it matters if the surgeon is in network with your insurance or not in network? Obviously the cost will be different, but I mean, do you think it matters in terms of surgical skill?
1: So the insurance topic gets a little bit complicated with endometriosis surgeons. So first, it's really critical to understand that the reason that some of these surgeons are, quote, out-of-network providers is not because they are simply greedy, as especially surgeons in other countries I've heard tell patients, oh, those United States surgeons, they charge all this money because they're greedy. That's not the case. What's really going on is that our doctors and surgeons – they contract with insurance providers and they negotiate reimbursements based on those relationships that they form. The federal government actually dictates some of the reimbursement values and then they vary from insurance companies. So what happens is that surgeons and doctors, as we're learning more publicly in the the United States, they're pretty much dictated by insurance companies on what they can do. So you'll hear about doctors complaining that they'll prescribe a medication, a life-saving medication, and insurance will deny coverage to that patient. This is a common theme with insurance companies. They're dictating care, even though sometimes they'll deny care that the provider has decided is necessary, but insurance doesn't want to pay. So what happens is that our surgeons that are, quote, ones that, quote, take insurance or in-network, they are still dictated by the insurance companies that they're contracted with. So what can this mean for the patient? This can mean that maybe you do have a really skilled surgeon, but they're limited on the amount of operating room time they have. They're limited on the amount of patients they can see. They have God knows whatever kind of restrictions over their head that can prevent them from spending the necessary amount of time on you as a patient. So say you get in there and you are very complicated, but the surgeon's like, I have to make a choice here. What do I have time to remove? What do I have the ability to do in my time constraints given to me? And so they're just going to have to do the best that they can. Sometimes this means that they're just going to tell you this endometriosis was too dangerous to remove when the reality is the insurance company, because of that contract, they just weren't in a position where they could really take the time to do it. Are there great surgeons that are in-network? Yes. Is there potential for them to operate to their full potential inhibited by the contracts with the insurance company? Yes. So you may not get their best work because of the restrictions put on them by insurance. Now, when you see these surgeons that are out-of-network, it's important to understand that out of network doesn't mean they don't take insurance. You need to look at your insurance to see if you have out of network benefits. If that's the case, you can appeal to your insurance and say these are the reasons X Y Z. I need this. I need the surgery with the surgeon. We do have. I know Amy's linked to a resource on how to appeal your insurance to get your excision covered. All this means is that your provider has not made a contractual agreement with this insurance company. However, if you can appeal to them, you can get it reimbursed at least somewhat. So these aren't just surgeons that are greedy. What's happening is because they're not contracted, they're not being regulated by the insurance company. They have full ability to go in and do what is necessary to completely treat your disease. If that means they're in the operating room with you for seven hours, They're in the operating room with you for seven hours. They're not being dictated by insurance that says, you got to stop now. There's no time for this. You know, they're going to be there. They're going to take their time. In that respect, you're getting what you pay for. It's an unfortunate reality. But I also want to say there are some doctors out there that kind of ride this wave and exploit it. So if you are getting a quote that's like, $20,000 $20,000 out of pocket right away. They want $10,000 down up front. That's a red flag because I know some of the best in the best in the United States are not even charging that. So always work with them and don't go based on just what you hear on social media. Some people will say I was quoted $30,000 by this doctor, when in the reality, that $30,000 includes the hospital price. What you need to understand is that just because the surgeon is out of network doesn't mean that the hospital they operate out of is out of network. You can see that this is really complicated. What I say is check the price with your surgeon. Make sure the hospital is in network with your insurance because that'll make a significant difference in the amount you owe. And then talk with the surgeon's office if you still can't afford what their quote is to you. Discuss your options with them. They're often able and willing to work with you to make it happen. So don't give up just because they say they're out of network. It is worth the fight with insurance to get reimbursed. And it is absolutely worth working with the surgeon's office for payment plans if they offer that and just working with them to make it happen. But also make also note that if they're wanting a twelve hundred dollar consult fee and then $8,000, $10,000 down up front, those definitely are red flags. So there's a sweet spot there.
0: And that's so important to point out is that just because they don't take insurance doesn't mean that they're a good doctor. There are some excision surgeons that I know of that are charging extremely high prices, don't take insurance, and they're not good endometriosis surgeons. So I think When it comes to having an excision surgery for endometriosis, this is a massive financial, emotional, physical undertaking on your body, on your life. And it is so important to fully investigate the surgical skill of your surgeon and their experience. So I think the theme that has been coming up in this episode is that it's just so important to interview and vet the surgeon to make sure that they have the skills to be able to treat your endometriosis. All right, Kate, so thank you so much for joining us today. I cannot tell you how much we love a repeat guest that you came back on the show. And I want to have you on again to talk about endometriosis research because, you know, that is one of the things that you're just so knowledgeable on. So for anyone who's not following Kate, definitely, definitely you want to follow Kate on Instagram. I'll go ahead and I'll put all of your different ads in the show notes today, but just thanks a lot for coming on, for educating us about how to find a surgeon. I have no doubt that this is probably going to be one of the most top listened episodes of our podcast. Number one is the episode that was done with Dr. David Redwine, so kind of curious if this episode is gonna beat that one out or not in terms of popularity.